Well, good morning. Welcome on this, uh, this weekend, this day of worship. Um, thanks for those of you that um, helped put on our Halloween festival last week. We had 400-plus uh, uh, people on our campus. People had a great time, and, and so, so grateful for that. You know, one of our nation's founders said, to fail to plan is to plan to fail. It was Benjamin Franklin. And his point was that without a plan, we'll never achieve a goal because a goal requires a plan, a sequence of steps or actions that we take in order to achieve that goal. Now, there are lots of different kinds of plans. When we watch the TV show Shark Tank, we see entrepreneurs present their business plans. College students work with their academic advisor to create an academic plan. I have a friend who retired from law enforcement and decided to go back to college. And so I asked her what she majored in, and she said Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, and so she meant that she only took classes that she found interesting on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But after a couple of years, she realized that she would never graduate if she didn't come with a plan. There are financial plans. A person experiencing homelessness that is trying to get themselves in a position to get their own apartment works a financial plan. A, a young couple trying to get out of debt or uh, an employee trying to retire by the um, time they turn 65, that all requires a financial plan. There are wedding plans and parenting plans, employee improvement plans, health care plans. When I taught ministry courses at Talbot and at Azusa Pacific, um, I would include a section on planning for churches, strategic planning for ministry. How should our Christian faith affect how we do these plans? Should people who have faith in Jesus plan differently than those who don't have faith in Jesus? We're in this series through the New Testament book of James that we're calling Faith Work. And in this series, we've been looking at how to put our faith to work in everyday life. And James tells us that if the faith that we claim to have in Jesus is for real and genuine, then it will translate into action in our daily lives. And that includes our plans. And so today we're going to look at faith work in our planning from James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. And we're going to see five actions that we can take in our planning to put our faith to work. And so I want to invite you, if you're able, would you stand with me for the reading of God's word as we look at James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Now listen, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. You can be seated. 
In this short passage at the end of chapter 4, James addresses some of the Christian business people within his church. And these business people were apparently merchants who would travel around to other cities and buy goods that were inexpensive in those cities and import those goods back to their home where they could sell them at a higher price and therefore turn a profit. Merchants comprised the the kind of the middle class in ancient Greco-Roman society. And James is not against Christian merchants doing business. He's not against them making a profit. What James is concerned about here is how they plan their presumptuousness in their planning. These Christian business people had failed to apply their faith in Jesus to how they planned their business. If you were to look at how these Christian merchants were planning their business and then compare it to how their non-Christian neighbors were planning their businesses, you would not find any difference between the two. These Christian merchants presumed that they alone controlled their time, where they go, what they do, and the profit that they make. For these Christian business people, their faith in Jesus wasn't yet having an effect on how they planned their business ventures. Now, James uses the example of business planning here, but what he says actually applies to all kinds of planning. A Bible scholar named Craig Blomberg puts it this way. He says, in our age of sophisticated, long-term strategic planning in the business world, often imitated by churches, how often do we fall prey to the identical temptation that we see here in our own planning, in our financial planning, and in our, our marriage planning? In our retirement planning, our academic planning, our church planning, our ministry planning, James gives us an alternative to presumptuous planning in these verses to put our faith to work when we make plans. Just some actions we're going to talk about. The first action is this. Admit you don't know the future. Admit that you do not know the future. James says in verse 12, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. No matter how smart we are, no matter how many books we read, none of us know exactly what's going to happen tomorrow for sure. Christian planning begins with admitting that only God knows the future. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Presumptuous planning pretends to know what's going to happen tomorrow. And often forecasters and futurists and television prophets make bold and brash predictions about the future and their confidence can mislead us into thinking that we know what's going to happen tomorrow. A presumptuous planner is not humble enough to admit that the future may not turn out how we think it should, how we hope it will, or how we expect it to turn out. Now, of course, as Christians, we do know one thing for certain about the future. We know that someday Jesus will return again and make all things right. 
We confess this in the words of the Apostles' Creed when we say, we believe he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the future second coming of Jesus. But we don't know exactly what's going to happen between now and then. And as much as some Christians like to speculate about what this event might mean or that event might mean in light of the future second coming of Jesus and Bible prophecy, the truth is, is the only thing we really know for sure and certain is that Jesus will come again. Consider the fact that every generation of Christians that has speculated about the fulfillment of Bible prophecy and the second coming of Jesus, every generation for the last 2,000 years up to our own has been wrong. That ought to at least humble us to admit that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. James reminds us here, we don't know what tomorrow will hold. Back in early 2020, we didn't know a global pandemic would turn our world upside down for nearly two years. None of us knows what accident or illness or setback or surprise or layoff might come into our life tomorrow. And it doesn't mean we should constantly worry about the future. Far from it. It simply means that we should be humble enough to admit that only God knows what's going to happen tomorrow. And when people make bold predictions about the future, we remind ourselves of the words of James here. That's the beginning of a Christian approach to planning. Second, recognize that life is fragile. Recognize that life is fragile. The second half of verse 14, James compares our lives to a mist that appears for a little while and then disappears, dissipates. And th this image of a mist is a common image in the Old Testament that James is drawing from. It describes a vapor that comes off a hot cup of coffee or a pot of boiling water. It's, it's there briefly, but then before you know it, it's gone. Human life is fragile. It disappears easily. We don't like to admit this fact. Uh, years ago, a cultural anthropologist named Ernest Becker wrote a book that won the Pulitzer Prize called The Denial of Death. And in that book, Becker suggested that a lot of people's psychological and emotional problems come from avoiding the reality that they will die someday, avoiding our mortality. Yet the Bible consistently reminds us that life is short. It's fragile that our lives are only here for a brief period of time on this earth, and then they're gone. And recognizing that life is fragile, it doesn't mean we should wrap our lives in bubble wrap. It doesn't mean living in constant fear about what might happen. Recognizing that life is fragile means reminding ourselves that our lives are not our own. Our lives belong to God. And God calls us to wisely steward the life that he's given us. Recognizing that life is fragile means choosing to live a life that's going to count for something, a life of purpose and meaning as it relates to God who gave us this gift. I was thinking about this when I, I read a book called Iger Dreams um, by a best-selling author, John Krakauer. Um, and there's a chapter in that book where John Krakauer, when he was in his early 20s, 
Um, he describes when he decided to free solo the east face of a mountain in Alaska called Devil's Thumb. Now, just the name should scare you. Devil's Thumb is one of the most dangerous mountains in the United States. It's a mixture of unstable rock, snow, and ice surrounded by unpredictable weather patterns. But being an overconfident climber who thought he was invincible in his early 20s, he tackled it alone, no one else with him. And as he made his way up the east face of Devil's Thumb, when he got a couple hundred feet from the ground, he realized that he was in way over his head. But with no rope, no partner, no belay, no protection, he couldn't downcline. The only way to safety was to keep going up. And by the time he finally summited, John says it was a turning point in his life. The moment that he realized his life was fragile. John Krakauer, I don't think he's a person of faith, but I think the Bible would heartily agree with the lesson that he learned when he was in his early 20s climbing the east face of that mountain. Life is fragile. And a faith that works recognizes this reality when we make any kinds of plans. Third, pursue God's will in your planning. Pursue God's will. Verse 15 says, we should say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and fulfill our plans. God's will should be the determining factor in any Christian's planning, whatever that planning might be. And the Bible uses this phrase, God's will or the will of God, a number of different ways. Sometimes it describes God's sovereign will. God's sovereign will is, is what God ultimately allows or permits to happen in our world. And sometimes God's sovereign will includes things that don't please God, but that God permits, often for reasons that we don't understand and can't comprehend. Like what happened to my friend Mark 25 years ago. When my friend Mark was on a family vacation after his first year of studying at Reformed Seminary to become a pastor, an intoxicated driver ran through a stop sign and hit his car. And my friend Mark and his aunt and his two-year-old son were all killed in the collision. His wife was the only survivor. And as you can imagine, it was a long and painful process for her to make sense out of what happened. In fact, I just saw her a couple of weeks ago, and, and she's remarried and has raised a family, but that still has left a mark. Could God have intervened to stop that driver from running the stop sign? God was powerful enough to do that, yet for some inexplicable reason that I can't understand, God permitted it for reasons I can't make sense of or explain, and I still get upset when I think about it, and it's been over 25 years. God is sovereign, and sometimes under God's sovereign rule, terrible, painful things happen, things that break God's heart. Things that defy explanation, this side of eternity. And so sometimes when people say Lord willing, they're referring to God's sovereign will. 
It used to be common practice for Christians, whenever they would write down a plan or a goal on a piece of paper, to write the letters DV underneath. Short for the Latin phrase, Deus volente, which means God willing, at the bottom of every plan. They were saying, this is what I'm planning to do, but it's only going to happen if it's part of God's sovereign will. And it's possible that's what James is referring to here, but I think it's more likely James here is talking about God's moral will. See, the Bible often uses this phrase, God's will or the will of God, to refer to what God wants us to do. For example, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says, it is God's will for you to be sanctified. Romans chapter 12 verse 2 says that, that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can see what God's will for us is. These verses aren't referring to God's sovereign will, they're referring to what God wants us to do. A presumptuous planner doesn't consider what God wants in their planning. Presumptuous planning focuses on what we want, but it never stops to consider the question of what God wants. That if we want to put our faith to work when we make plans, any kind of plans, we need to ask the question, what does God want in this situation? And then we can look to the Bible, and the Bible gives us a general framework of God's moral will, because God is is never going to guide us into doing something that contradicts what he said to do in the Bible. And then, after we look to the Bible through prayer and discernment with other believers, we can narrow down what we think God wants to do in any given situation. Many of the pastoral appointments I've had through the years have been with people trying to discern the will of God in their planning. Christian author A.W. Tozer used to pray this every day. This was Tozer's prayer. Lord, I am your servant to do your will. And your will is sweeter to me than any position or riches or fame. I choose your will above all things on earth or in heaven. We put our faith to work by pursuing God's will in our planning. Fourth, execute your plans humbly. Execute your plans humbly. In verse 16, James accuses these Christian business people of boasting about their arrogant schemes. And I read this and I thought, well, what's the difference between a plan and a scheme? And I think the difference between a plan and a scheme is a plan has humility and a scheme has arrogance. Again and again, James has warned us about the dangers of pride and pushed us towards pursuing humility. Pastor Betsy talked about this at length last Sunday. When we execute our plans humbly, we act with flexibility adaptability. We hold our plans loosely with open hands instead of tight fists of pride. And I have to admit, this one's hard for me because I'm a planner and when I make a plan, I like to stick with it no matter what. 
For, for example, um, I do all my sermon planning during the summer. I, I get away for a couple of days. I usually go to a retreat center, and then I, um, I pray through Glenn Kirk's mission and where I think that we're doing well and where I think we need to grow. I think through my pastoral conversations with people. I think through um, what's happening on session with our elders, the observations I've made over the last year. I seek God, and then based on that, I plan out the, the teaching series and sermon series and the topics for the entire year. So by the time we start the fall, it's planned until July. But a couple of things have happened the last couple of months, a couple of things in my family, a couple of things in the church have, have forced me to readjust that planning, and I got to tell you, I don't like it. Because I have to face the choice of rigidly and pridefully holding on to my plans so they become schemes or opening my hands and changing my plans and adapting. If we want to put our faith to work, we have to execute our plans with humility, lest they become boastful schemes. The fifth and final action in this section is to do good in our plans to do good. Verse 17 says, if we know the good we ought to do, but we failed to do it, for us it's sin. You see, some sins are sins of commission. A sin of commission is knowing that an action is wrong and then doing that action that we know is wrong. And when most of us think about our sins, we think about sins of commission, doing things we know we shouldn't do. But here in verse 17, James is talking about sins of omission. A sin of omission is failing to do something good that God wanted us to do. A sin of omission isn't an action, it's a failure to act, an absence of action. And when we confess our sins together, the, the prayer of confession that we often use includes the things that we have done, sins of commission, and the things we've left undone, sins of omission. Presumptuous planning doesn't consider the good God might want us to do in our planning. Presumptuous planning is only focused on what's good for us, not what may be good for others. Presumptuous planning may not always lead us to commit actions that are wrong or immoral, but presumptuous planning will lead us into sins of omission, an absence of action when God wants us to do something. Our Christian faith ought to lead us to consider the good of others in our planning but would not only benefit us, but benefit others. What would it be like for us to consider how our plans might promote the good of other people? In our financial planning, considering the good of others is building into our financial planning, our giving to our church, to the ministries we believe in, to our neighbors and to other people when they have need. That's planning for the good of others. I think of an example of my, my friend Cheryl. Um, Cheryl used to be a professor at Azusa Pacific. Um, we taught ministry internship courses together uh, a number of years together until she passed away from renal cancer a couple of years ago. And, and Cheryl was single her whole life. She never married. And whenever students would come to Cheryl for advice 
um, about whether they should marry their current boyfriend or girlfriend, Cheryl always asked them the same question. Will you getting married to each other further the work of God's kingdom in the world or hold it back? In other words, will your marriage bring good to others beyond yourselves? I always thought that was a brilliant question for her to ask. What might it be like for us to consider the good of others in our business plans, our church plans, our financial plans, our marriage plans, our retirement plans? In James chapter 4, we find a uniquely Christian approach to planning. We put our faith to work in our planning by admitting we don't know the future, recognizing that life is fragile. Pursuing God's will in our planning. What does God want to happen? Executing those plans with humility and then doing good in our plans. See, our world and its wisdom feeds presumption. Wants us to deceive us into thinking that we know what tomorrow holds. It wants to distract us from the fact that life is fragile. Wants to tempt us to set aside the will of God in our plans. It fuels arrogance in the execution of our plans and leads us to sins of omission, neglecting the good of others. But like these Christian business people James wrote to, they had never learned to put their faith to work in their planning, but now we know because James has told us. And so to quote verse 17 again, if anyone knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, For them it's sin. We know the good that we ought to do. Let's do that good. Let's pray together. Father, as we come to you preparing our hearts for the celebration of the Lord's Supper, Lord, we thank you that you are sovereign and that you have a good plan that you're working out. Lord, may our plans be part of that greater plan that you are working out to bring you glory, to do your will, to live lives of meaning and purpose, and to bring good to those around us. God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.